Hey everybody, my name is Marshall Kozloff. I'm the host of OnDeck's new podcast, The Deep End. We're launching the show with three episodes, Catherine Boyle on civic technology, Balaji Srinivasan on the network state, and Eric Torenberg on the future of higher education. We are going to feature the episode of Eric Torenberg right here on this feed. And if you enjoy the episode, be sure to check out the conversations with Balaji and Catherine. You could find The Deep End wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let's dive in. Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and experts discuss world-changing ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kosloff. Let's dive in. With The Deep End, we're creating a space where we skip the surface level and go in-depth into ideas that matter. I'll be your guide as we explore possible futures of commerce, higher education, art, governance, longevity, and more, with some of the most exciting figures in their respective fields. Joining me today in the deep end is Eric Torenberg, co-founder and chairman of OnDeck. Many who discuss the future of higher education do it from a purely academic perspective, not Eric. He's on a mission to build OnDeck into a modern educational institution for the future of work. There's a reason why people are always tweeting about how the most talented people they know have joined on deck. It's become the place top talent and ambitious builders go to accelerate their ideas and careers, empowered by a world-class community of their peers. On deck is guided by Eric's compelling ideas about what's causing incumbent universities to fail and the opportunities that exist for new institutions that choose to chart a different path. We discuss ideas ranging from unbundling and cost disease to talent identification and credentialism. These ideas apply far beyond on deck. They're critical to understanding where education is headed around the world. The Deep End is produced by On Deck, where top talent goes to accelerate their ideas and careers. We hope that those who listen to the ideas on the show are inspired to build. To learn more about On Deck's programs, visit beyonddeck.com. For show notes and additional resources related to The Deep End, check out ideas.beyonddeck.com. All right, let's dive in. Torenberg, welcome to the deep end. It's great to be here. We are going to discuss a topic that is near and dear to your heart, future of higher education. But the reason why I love this topic so much is you've done a lot of really interesting thinking on a lot of other different topics that we could actually deconstruct through the lens of higher ed. So we're not just talking about colleges and universities, we're also talking about decentralization, centralization, bombers, cost disease, all of the all the really great things. So Let's just start here. For as long as basically you and I can remember, we went to college during the late 2000s, the late aughts, there has been talk of higher education being a bubble, of how there are all these problems in the space and how there are these outdated brick and mortar universities, all of its really being offered as a credential. Yeah, it's the best years of your lives, but is that really worth $50,000? All of those narratives were basically put to the test over the past year, when due to COVID, you had schools transitioning instantaneously to Zoom. So as someone who's been thinking about this space for a long time, it'd just be great for you to reflect on how or how not have the past 14 months or so impacted or demonstrated or really just run experiments with people's narratives in this space. Well, I think first it's helpful to even just zoom out and say, what were the complaints that people have been saying for the past past decade? And they're numerous. One is, you know, the, the cost has gotten way out of control. 
uh, you know, risen, you know, w- way past inflation. Two, you know, there's way too much student debt. Three, there's there's way too many students dropping out. I think it's almost 40% at this point that, that aren't completing. Four, there's just too big of a mismatch between what graduates get from, from going to college and then what employers want. And you're seeing that in the statistics. And then there's 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 no competition. Um, so, and then also there's a broader question of like, what is the purpose of, of higher ed, right? Is it to get a job? Is it to, you know, become a critical thinker? Is it to, is it a four-year party? Uh, you know, whatever the purpose is, uh, they're, they're failing on that purpose, except for the party on a price per, you know, comparative to, a go, you know, going to the club every night. It's, it's actually quite a, quite a good deal <laughs> financially, but th- th- there was a broader question of, okay, you have all these criticisms. What's the alternative? Right. And, and, and we had, you know, MOOCs, uh, massive online op- open courses a, a decade ago, which basically took the, the same content that you were learning at MIT, Harvard and put it online. And everyone thought, okay, this is going to be the big, the big disruptor. And it turned out uh, it wasn't not, not even close because I, I think we, we misunderstood what exactly college is, right? It, it's not, it's not only what you learn. It's, it's this bundle. It's the education, it's the network, it's the credential and it's this experience that people get. And I think what you realized is that you couldn't just unbundle it. You had to rebundle the exact value prop. And, and it, of course, it's, it's things beyond that, right? It's, it's social, you know, it's friendships, it's dating, it's coming of age, it's, it's getting away from your parents. It's, it's all these things, right? And so uh, I think what the last year in COVID showed is it not only unbundled the education, but it also bundled uh, all that experience, the network, the, the in-person and what it really showed is that you're paying all this money, quarter million dollars and, and rising for the credential, right? And so uh, you, what you've seen the last year, it's coincided with uh, EdTech getting really hot, right? OnDeck raised $20 million. Uh, you know, Reforge, uh, another so, uh, sort of uh, you know, online school, raised $20 million. Uh, you know, Maven, the other day, uh, more of a, a platform for cohort-based courses, similar to what we offer, you raised $20 million. And so I think... Uh, on the startup side, people are seeing, okay, the emperor has no clothes. It's so expensive for what it's offering. Um, and yet still there, there aren't alternatives. And I think on the student side, we're starting to see just, just more and more demand for, for continuous learning and also college supplements and, and replacements. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating because I'm curious on the on-deck and on-deck was in person during the same period. So you also had to go through the experience of transitioning these in-person cohorts online. What were your lessons from that experience? Because this is something which basically everyone, every company, every university, even a small startup had to really navigate through. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things. I mean, what, the big change for, for OnDeck um, basically is that we went global right away. So we were just in San Francisco uh, and then we had a chapter in New York. Um, and so, um, we were limited to, to people in, in those cities. Um, and what we didn't realize is the latent demand for, for our type of experience globally. I mean, now San Francisco and New York are a tiny fraction, uh, and we have a whole international team that, that's focused on, on, on doing that. And because, you know, Peter Thiel said that colleges are, are nightclubs in that they get their status not from who they let in, but from who they exclude, right? You, you know, uh, Harvard, Stanford, Princeton have only 6,000, you know, people a year that they can accept. Although, of course, there are more than 6,000 people in the world who are qualified to get in, but uh, you know, they're, they're, it's an exclusion-based credential. We, we're not that. And so we were able to scale from one program to you know, 17 programs uh, across different verticals and different categories. Um, and it was really because we were able to 
harness a global, um, you know, global audience, but also because we're, because we're digital first, digital native, we, uh, we can attract people from all ages. We can attract people at, you know, one hundredth of the, of the price point that, that colleges offer. And that just expands the, the, the market massively. So that's sort of one meta learning, but then the other learning is, is how to just do uh, remote really well. And, and what we've seen in the last few years that, that didn't exist a decade ago is that, and, and this is why on deck couldn't have existed a decade ago is that the tools are just so much better, right? Not just zoom and Slack, but all the other no codes stack that we use to, to run our company, to run our operations and to facilitate great, um, you know, experiences between, uh, between the fellows. You know, and the concept I want to pull out here is what you are basically saying is that online enabled on deck to expand the number of seats that had access to. And if you're looking at one of the critiques of the higher education system is that actually for a long time, a lot of the value of holding that credential is that by restricting the seats, by not expanding, there's obviously far more qualified people that could go to Harvard, Stanford, MIT than actually go. So can you just reflect on the idea of expansion and keeping, you know, the pool of people really limited, how not, and how that can be provide opportunities for folks to think about this differently. What I hinted at earlier is that education has become unbundled with, with, with MOOCs and, and just the content, you know, directly out of their, their classroom into on the internet. That's amazing. Networks are starting to get unbundled things like Y Combinator, things like on deck, you know, a lot of vertical specific, you know, gap year programs and other types of, uh, you know, digital experiences where, where people can build um, really strong networks. Uh, the credential is elastic. And what COVID showed is that people are really, you know, paying quarter of a million dollars for, for the credential. And um, the sort of credential we have right now is you either got in or you did. You, you went to Harvard or, or you did. And you also, by the way, there's a thing called the sheepskin effect, where basically the data shows that, you know, if you divide college into eight semesters, People, the difference between people who finish the seventh semester and eighth semester, i.e., people graduate, people who drop out last minute, is massive. And it would imply that you know you're learning so much during this last semester. Um, but of course, that that can't be true. You mean by that? You mean by their employment outcome, right? Yes. Yeah. And of, of course, that that can't be true. And and so really, it's like it, it's this binary thing. What what, we're, what the internet um, allows is is a much more granular way of looking at credentials from sort of this macro, like, did you get in versus did you didn't versus more of, okay, what are your competencies? W what are you actually skilled at? What, what can you do? And, th and there are areas we call them proof of work areas like code and design where you could just show your work and there are platforms that have emerged vertical specific like GitHub for, for developers and Behance for designers where just a, a portfolio of what you've built is way more signal than you majoring in computer science. Um, and in terms of like, you know, what, what employers actually looking for. So that, that's sort of, you know, credentials 1.0 in terms of upgrade there. Now, not every field is, is show your work. Um, and so one thing I've been really excited about, we experimented this, with this project called Cosign, which we'll bring back at some point, is sort of peer-to-peer -peer credentials, right? Where it's, if you were to tell me, um, or, you know, maybe a hundred people I trust were to tell me who are the five people that they really respect who are under 25, I would probably value those recommendations more than a, than a Harvard degree. And for you, to, in terms of like who I'd rather hire, and for you to tell me that is free for you. Like that, that is just information that's in your head. You, you haven't told it to me. And if we could get that information out there on a platform, I think that would encourage people to build credentials in a, in a different way. Because in a, in a very competitive uh, job market. People are looking for any angle that, that they can get. And right now, colleges have a monopoly on, on credentials. And it, 
as soon as that's unbundled, I think that's the le- last leg to fall in terms of everybody going going to college. I'm I'm fascinated by the credential idea, but here's where the cons- not even a concern, but where there's just like a, a bottleneck potentially, which is basically I just see a world where you could have all these like super you know pure credentialed people, and it's all the you know Stanford class of twenty two crew, um, yeah. you know. So how how do you basically surmount the fact that the thing that college is still best at, especially at the elite level, is, hey, we're going to take a lot of really smart, really ambitious people, throw them in a room together for four years. And it doesn't really matter like how much they learn, because as you're pointing out, no one actually really cares. I mean, you actually, you had this tweet, um, which I failed to properly uh, uh, say was yours last time we talked on a podcast. I always say it properly. You had this tweet where you said, the smartest move you could make is get into Stanford and then drop out on day one before they actually have their tuition checks due. So, but given that, how does credentialing not just end in once again, elite people just recommending other elite people. Because it feels like the advantage of credentialing, especially outside of tech, could be, hey, here's this ambitious person. They might not have the right degree. They might not have gone to the right school. They might not be in the right network, but they've been really recommended by these other people who can elevate them. How would we think about credentialing in that context? One way to think about colleges is that employers have outsourced two uh, sort of tests to colleges. One is IQ tests, and two is conscientious tests. And the IQ test is via the SAT um, and the conscientiousness is sort of via grades and, and do you graduate. Other ways to measure just aptitude, because what you don't only want is, is just like you, you want actually like specific, you know, can this person code, can this person design, does this person have the domain expertise that, or and the aptitude development that we're looking for. And then the conscientiousness of like, you know, is this a person that I want, you know, to, to work at my company? Are they going to work well with people? And so right now, if you were to say, you know, that, uh, the amount of elite credentials are exist are Ivy League schools are all the kids that are in Ivy League schools. So that's like I don't, I don't know. It's like fifteen schools times like six thousand or, or, or whatever that math is. And you were to say, okay, here's this world of peer to peer credentials where you know you have your top five. Uh, Mark Andreessen has his top five. Bology has his top five. Everybody has their top five. And 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 I, I would value that as much as an Ivy League credential. What that would do is raise the amount of elite credentials by. I don't know if it's 10x, I don't know if it's 100x, I don't know if it's maybe 1,000x. So I, I think it's not a perfect solution. There's still going to be people out there who don't have networks who are not discovered, but it's a it's a materially um, better solution. So I, I think we want some combination of totally open source ways by which anybody um, you know with an internet connection can prove how smart they are, how impressive they are. You know, Pioneer, our friend Daniel Gross's startup is, is trying to do that to create a game where anyone in the world can prove themselves, but also areas in which people who may not have the money or may not have, have uh, you know, the grades because they learn in a different kind of way to, to get into Harvard, but are, are really impressive to also just showcase how good they are. But I, I just say that you're going to need a, a diversity of solutions in order to, in order to capture the diversity of talents that, that people have. No, and that builds on a point that you've written about, which is the fact that part of the reason why the system works the way it is, is that college is a monopoly. And it's a bit misguided of me to say, well, hey, peer-to-peer credentials won't solve everything because the way you attack a monopoly is it has to come for a bunch of different parts because your point is that if college is a bundle, it's the credential. It's the four-year party. That's the part which we're probably going to solve last to your point earlier, but it's the four-year party. It's the education. It's everything there. So we should be approaching this from a bunch of different processes. So this is where 
I, th- I think a quote I see everyone that I really just love, which is Jim Barksdale um, from Netscape saying, you know, there are only two ways to make money on the internet, famous saying, you bundle things and you unbundle things. So let's just play a quick thought experiment. Let's say that your best case scenario uh, over the next 10 to 15 years, all these different parts of the university system are unbundled. How would they possibly bundle together again? Maybe that's playing too far in the future, but if it's just this cycle that we're seeing in, across every industry, it'd be fascinating to see when someone says, hey, you know, we're doing tutoring sessions. I know you're doing some of those. I'd love to yeah. talk with about that. We're doing tutoring sessions. Hey, maybe we should have a certificate that says you were received this tutoring thing. And okay. then if there's scales back up again, how do you how do you think about this part? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, what we learned is that the the first 10, 20 years of ed tech were about taking education and putting it on the web. Um, and so we got in a very schemophobic sense. So we got, you know, MOOCs, we got masterclass, we got online tutors. And 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 what we're seeing now and, and for the next 10 years is that the the internet will change what we mean by education. What I think that'll look like is, is sort of what we talked about, you know, on deck, lambda, pioneer. The one one tangible lesson is that um you know, it's not just the the content that is scarce, it's the motivation to learn. <laughs> and the motivation to learn is increased with other people. And so you've seen the rise of cohort-based courses, which is internet native, but also just takes the best of what we've seen in terms of what inspires people to, to learn and, and build relationships. And then if you, you know, take that and you have a rigorous admissions process, similar to what we've seen great colleges do, because yeah, for all the you know critiques I have on great colleges, on colleges, they know how to run an admissions process and they know how to, how to build a credential that that really matters. And, and then they also know how to create an environment where where people build relationships that that last for you know decades and create context for people that even if you didn't go to Stanford or whatever school or at the same time as somebody else, if you went to the same school thirty years from you could say, oh wow, you know you went to a football game or whatever other rituals that they that they have in common and and build relationships there. So I think what we're seeing is. Companies right now are taking the best of what colleges do and the best of what the internet does, uh, which is makes things you know scalable, accessible, fraction of, of the cost, and and rebundle these solutions uh, together. But you, you you probably might start with a, with an unbundle, and then you might add some of the other components on top of it. Yeah, I want to actually talk about because you just referenced the learning idea and something that has really frustrated me ever since I started podcasting. Maybe this will resonate with you too. Is I wasn't very motivated to just read and study and do all those things. But over the past few years, like ever since I started just lurking, I only lurk on Twitter, but ever since I started lurking on Twitter, since I started listening to more podcasts, doing them, I just got really excited about reading and learning. That wasn't something that I was particularly jazzed about during college as much. I've read more in the past two years than I read straight up in the last 10. As someone who's going and looking into these different like tutoring opportunities, how do you think about how people could have learning delivered? Because if we're, if we're going to critique a Bit of the current system, it's that it doesn't optimize for that process. It didn't matter if I straight up only read three or four books during college because I still got the credential anyways. I'm still here. So how do you just think about the learning aspect of this? Yeah, I think there's a broader question around like you know how does one become the person who wants to to to, to read more into the spirit of like it's not just the content, it's the desire to learn that is scarce. And I you know there's this great quote of course around like you're the average of the five people you spend your most time with. And what the internet has done is it's made it so that you can just have much more deliberate choice of who are the five people you spend your most time with. Like it used to be, you know, the people in your dorm or, and yeah, you could like read Ben Franklin's like biography or whatever and, and get some, and that's amazing. That's great. 
but you could follow like Balaji all day on Twitter. <laughs> and, and, and like, even if you're in a different place and, and if you're friends with him, you could be in a group chat with him. So one, there's just way more access to the people that you want to be in terms of their brain um, on, on a day-to-day basis. But then also there's just so much more ability. And yeah, not everyone's going to be able to be in a group chat with Balaji, but you will be able to, the internet does enable you to be in a group chat with people who are on the same trajectory view and want to be in the, in the same. So it's so much it's more easier than it's ever been to have control over the five people that you, that you want to be in terms of where you spend your, your time with either in a, you know, peer to peer relationship or even in a, um, you know, parasocial, you know, one, one to many, um, relationship. And I, I think that's fascinating. And then in terms of, of solutions, one thing I'm, I'm really interested in is that there are all these professors who are, you know, world-class in, in what they do, but don't like working in this bu- these bureaucratic uh, institutions where, where they don't have, they don't get paid super well necessarily, or they don't have control over their time, or they don't feel they have intellectual freedom. And in the same way that Substack has provided so many new opportunities for journalists, right, where either like someone like Matt Iglesias or Greenwald Greenwald just gets paid with what the, the market actually thinks that they deserve, which is like 3x what they were getting paid otherwise, or it just enables you know, new people who didn't want to work at a, at a legacy institution to just go totally independent. I, I think we're going to see the same thing in academia. And, and we start to see these little pockets. We have Justin Murphy, Michael Millerman, these sort of these professors, these researchers who are doing intellectual work uh, publicly and, and, and charging for it. And then also they're teaching publicly and finding an audience on the internet. So I don't, I don't know if there's a whole separate platform for that. I don't know if that platform is actually Substack. But I think we're going to see the same, we're going to see phenomena where uh, professors go D to C. And as a result, the best ones make a lot more money. And also, um, there's just a lot more people that that become professors uh, and it expands the market. Yeah, I just want to double click on what you're saying, because the point here, Substack doesn't get rid of journalists. Substack right. doesn't get rid of existing newspapers. What it does is it says, hey, if you're in the top 5%, you are you are carrying much more weight in terms of audience interest, in terms of subscription generation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you now have this option of exiting that system in order to make much more money. So your point here is that if we're thinking about this vision for this, it wouldn't be that every you know there, there's not going to be a OnlyFans for professors. I guess OnlyFans could technically do that too. It's not <laughs> technically just for porn, yeah. um, but. It's not going to say that that is going to replace the university. It's going to say that there are going to be opportunities if you are just that 10x person who can do this. And I know, for example, there's a lot of beef with you know Scott Galloway um, in the tech community. But that being said, at a pure performative, drawing an audience, creating companies around yourself, he's really a good model of how people are going to really develop that in different verticals other than just business and finance. So something that I want to talk about, because you keep on referencing the internet and we're also saying Balaji, I suggest anyone who's starting with this episode also go check out our other episode of Balaji that's being cross-posted at the same time. He had this great quote where he said, essentially, that any institution that came about before the internet is going to be fundamentally disrupted or replaced by it. And we hinted at this a bit during the monopoly discussion, but if we're seeing the internet fundamentally break institutions like journalism, it's bringing into mind entire new questions of governance, everything like that. Why at a core level, beyond just the the, the obvious point of like the credential discussion, 
has the education industry, and this includes K through 12 education as well too, so we're not just talking about universities, how has this just been able to survive the longest? When if you're actually looking at the customer satisfaction, quote unquote, it's near the lowest point. You also had this great, you had this really great post about um, how trust in institutions has just declined since the 1960s and everything within that theme of the internet challenging legacy institutions, but also of as institutions themselves losing credibility should apply to K through 12 education and higher ed. So what's the broader narrative story that you think is going on here? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things here. And, and one, just to close the loop on the, on the Substack for, for professors, one reason why I'm so excited about that is because, you know, to your point, Substack didn't kill legacy institutions, but also, you know, the thing with college that's interesting is that you spend all your time in structured learning environments, many of which don't work for most people. <laughs> you know, um, and then after that, you're like basically done for the rest of your life <laughs> in terms of structured l- learning. And it, it's just so ironic that at the point at which you finish college, you you know, a few years after that, you finally get the maturity to, to your point earlier of like, okay, now I'm actually curious to learn so much of, of, of this stuff, and yet there's nothing for me. And so that's why you know, continuous education is such a, an opportunity. That's what we're doing with OnDeck is, is taking that bundle, uh, the college bundle and, and applying it to someone's entire career. Um, and so I'm excited for, for college professors to get access to that, you know, demographic that, you know, most people don't have tutors right now. And that's how we used to learn. But I, I'm excited for a world where where many people do. And, and that seems like a new market opportunity. And comparison to media, it's it's because it's not like people stop reading the New York the news right people still read the news um, th- throughout their li- lives but now it's just better better content uh, and now academics are competing with with nothing so it's um, or with other uses of time so it's it's, it's a big opportunity in terms of why um, education has lasted for for or higher ed has lasted for so long it, it's interesting on, on two fronts so one is what Silicon Valley doesn't appreciate I have this post on uh, how to build curation businesses. And curation businesses are businesses or universities, um, you know, accelerators, venture capital firms, um, sort of talent businesses. Is that they're really defensible, right? There, there's this there's this line where since since 1520, only 85 institutions have remained continuously in existence, and about 70 of those 85 are universities, right? What are the other 15? What are the other 15? That's what I'm really wondering. Good question. Uh, the church, <laughs> religious <laughs> institutions, and and it makes sense to compare them in, in, in some ways, right? Like you know, uh, the, the, the church has had its fair share of criticism to, to put it mildly. And yet it's still, it's still kicking, right? Like these are, you know, institutions that have very, um, long feedback loops are very hard to disrupt. Right. Um, and, and universities have incredibly long feedback loops, right? Like someone goes through a a, a university, the university then takes credit for their success for the rest of their life. And the rest of their life is like, you know, 50 to 80 years in the working world. And so in order for a new university to come on the scene um, and say, hey, we make people successful too, you, you, know, you have to wait like 60 years, right? You have to uh, have them go through the program and then become super successful and then credit their success to, to, to your experience. And, 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 and by the way, there, there's this double effect where also like once you've gone through that university, you are incentivized to make that university seem as good as possible because you've adopted it to your identity. So um, even if it didn't like help you get that successful, if you're putting it as your, um, you know, in your, in your biography, 
um, you're incentivized to say, oh, this is for the top people and it's really successful so that future people will, will continue to go through that university and, and make it that, that network and that credential even more value for you. It's a sort of this like pyramid scheme in a bunch of different ways. And so Mark Andreessen in, in a recent um, Andreessen Horowitz podcast episode, someone asked him, will, will, what will last longer, Harvard or the United States? And, and he picked Harvard. And, and he said, whatever comes after the United States or the philosophy that undergirds it will likely be sort of created at, at Harvard. Um, and, and Harvard has preceded, you know, existed prior to the United States. And a lot of the dominant, um, you know, ideologies that, that have come to place ha- have emerged out, out of Harvard or people who are in that milieu. Um, so I think it's, it's worth giving credit to where to credit's due in terms of the business model of, of universities and, and just in terms of or the, just the product and how durable it is. And people in Silicon Valley don't appreciate it because they like to focus on um, tech moats and, and, and data moats. You know, we talk about Amazon and Facebook and Google. And yeah, these are immensely defensible companies. But, you know, 50 years from now, they'll probably be disrupted in the same way that IBM was disrupted, same way that, you know, Microsoft's still, still doing great. But and so and, and some of these might not exist, whereas Harvard and Stanford will, will 100% exist. That, that's the positive. The more negative reason would be because we, we have created a uh, basically a, accreditation cartel where universities have special privileges given by the governments. They have sort of special uh, you know, tax write-offs, uh, tax exemptions at the company level, the endowment level, you know, federal subsidy, uh, subsidies for research, for, for student loans. And the only way you get those advantages if you're an accredited university. For, start, for new universities to become accredited, it's an incredibly painstaking effort. Most of them you know, don't get approved. And it's so painstaking that most people don't even want to try doing it. And th- this is why you know, regulated industries um, are, are just so hard to compete in. And people often go to, go to other ones. Th- those are a couple of reasons why it's just been uh, so, hard to, so hard to compete. Yeah. And I just want to build on what you're saying here because it's the you know curation business aspect, but I also think something that hasn't quite happened yet with any alternative to the broader higher education system is just the, think of an intangible thing like a sports team, right? Like some of my earliest, I'm from Oregon and, and you went to Michigan. So like, there's obviously like, you know, you know, huge um, sports programs. I remember when I was four, just seeing Oregon Ducks gear at the store and thinking, hey, like, I want to do that. I, I wasn't thinking about school. I was basically in kindergarten. So what do you think, whether it's on deck or it's a tutoring type thing or anything, what are the equivalents of just those intangible things of, of the community part of affiliation, right? Like that's a huge part of the university thing because it's, it's not just that because I, I, I think your, I think your, uh, your, your Ponzi scheme point is very funny about like, oh yeah, like U of O is awesome, and I need to say U of O is awesome, or else people will think that U of O isn't that useful on my, on my resume. There's the cynical take there, which is also directionally true, but there's also, hey, like I want to pump U of O up because I want U of O to succeed because the U of O is a part of my identity. I have a U of O like hat over there in the corner. So how do you think that part can be captured by these alternatives? Communities that become part of people's identities are, are immensely valuable for, for, for the reasons you, you mentioned and that, that we've discussed. And I think in a sort of world in which religion plays less and less a role in, in people's lives and in people are you know, way more transient and, and, and there's just a lot more chaos, 
people are searching for, for new identities, for things that ground them in certain values and in, in, and in certain groups of um, certain groups of people that, that they want to be a part of and, and that they, they feel represent them. And I think universities uh, for, for many people ha- have become that. I like to say that great communities um, are all about value and values. And, and by value, I mean, utility, like what, what brings them uh, there in the first place? What, what is the reason by which they gather um, such that they, they are better off for it? And values is uh, what are the reasons that they keep gathering? What, what is the reasons that um, they want to put this as part of their identity because it says something about them as a person that they, that they feel really represents them? And communities that are able to, to do that just become immensely defensible. And, and so uh, in order, you know, the big mistake that a lot of communities make is that they try to do one without the other. They they really focus on uh, the, the set of values and, and the set of you know rituals and the set of what the identity represents, but they don't think about the tangible utility to get people coming in the door in the first place. And and others focus on you know make the mistake of focusing on purely utility, but if you don't focus on something bigger than, than that, something that binds everybody together, something that um, you know they, they want as part of their identity, you end up with sort of this transactional network that as soon as utility starts to fade even a little bit, people aren't, are, are going to leave and, and not going to commit to it. Um, and as a result, you know, make the utility stronger. To your point, I, I think anything that tries to rebundle the educational, um, you know, experience has to sort of do, do that uh, as well. And you could think of like football in this context, right? Like, or sports. Um, some people say, oh, it might be, it's frivolous, all this money spent on this. And, and maybe there's some truth to that. But at the same time, what is football or what, what is their rituals? They're, they're bonding rituals by which the people who do them, you know, create incredible experiences, but also the people who witness them, you know, feel connected to, to their university and it becomes a part of their identity. And so what, the question for new competitors is like, what's the digital native version of that? What, what's the 2021 uh, version v- version of that? Why did you say digital native? Like, why does that part have to be digital native? I think digital native solutions often beat out, you know, sort of pre-digital native solutions just because they can compete on areas that the pre-digital natives can't, which are um, flexibility, um, sort of access to global talent pool, and if you're, you, you've, you've seen this with YC, right? YC used to be everybody had to go to, to Mountain View. We started to see a, a bunch of people, you know, from all over the world who said, hey, I love the YC network. I, I love the value prop. But if I leave, you know, um, you know, Mumbai for my, you know, uh, on-demand startup, you know, that's going to affect um, my business. So I, I can't go. And so, and then we, you know, I think YC went remote because, because of COVID. And I, I think they're staying remote. But basically, there's just like a digital native just better serves a, a global audience um, who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to, you know, spend four years in this one specific place, but wants an experience that is better suited to, to their goals. So digital native is just going to be able to attract better talent pools and, and, and serve them. Before YC, before digital native, you didn't really have much of a choice. And so uh, the people that had power were the providers. But now in a world in which there's competition... Um, people are going to compete to serve a global talent network and just cater to their preferences because they bring the value. They're the customer. They're, they're what people want. And so uh, when I say digital native, what I really mean is like customer centric and, and what the internet enables is just more customization. It makes proximity uh, not a barrier for people to, to do so. And that's not to say that like, I mean, football and sports will still exist and might be, be a big part of it, but you know, 
if you think that opportunity or that talent is evenly distributed, there's going to be a subset of that talent that is not going to want to live in four years for four years in, in San Francisco or, or wherever to go, go to a football game. They're going to want to live where they are, but also be able to have, have those bonding experiences. Yeah, we're, we're nearing the end here. And you just said 15 really interesting things. So I want to put all of my podcaster skills to the test and see if we can capture them. Sure. So one, you just said customer, but the key thing here, and this is part of the critique, you aren't really a customer in the higher education system in the sense that sure you're paying tuition, but oftentimes you are getting a federally subsidized student loan, which in various ways isn't directly quite tied to the way you're engaging in the market. So what is a like quick way that you're thinking about good market forces? So I'm not trying to think of like rapacious capitalism and you know, you sell your, you know, right foot to like make it into your, you know, intro to writing one on one class. But what is a way that maybe you could become more of a customer with the system in a way that doesn't really degrade the experience? You've nailed it. Basically the student isn't the customer, which is why uh, the prices have skyrocketed uh, and they've skyrocketed in conjunction with government subsidies. So the government is basically subsidizing colleges to just keep raising their prices. I think colleges capture 65 cents of every dollar that governments um, you know, subsidize the loans for and only 25 uh, cents of that dollar goes to, goes to the actual teaching. Um, and, and basically what we've done is we've created the, the healthcare system by basically moving to a system of third-party payer where people don't pay for themselves because there's so many subsidies directly and indirectly built into the system that just breaks down all, all uh, accountability from customers. And what we've also, you know, we, we, this is what happens when, when the government restricts supply, right? They uh, make it very difficult for other uh, new entrants to, to emerge. What happens is the price escalates and quality remains stagnant, right? Like why care if you don't have to? <laughs> um, and you can still be a really big business. And then on the other side, government also subsidizes demand with taxpayer funding causes price pricing to rise uh, even higher. And, and we see similar things happen in, in housing and, and healthcare. And if you're asking, you know, what can we do to, to change that? Um, I, I think there is a, uh, there's a few things. One is income share agreements are a really powerful way to make the, the, the student, the, the customer again, where colleges are not um, just dependent on what the government thinks, um, but dependent on how well their actual, their customers do. And as for career-centric categories, that, that's really amazing. And that's why we've seen you know, companies like Lambda and others innovate and, and take business away from universities. I expect that to continue. Um, I think one sample solution in a dream world is that the, the subsidies are given straight to the students rather than indirectly via the, the universities. Because you know, we, we just mentioned you know, only 25% of it goes, goes to the teaching. Um, and we have you know, 40% of you know, students dropping out and, and $1.7 trillion in, in student debt. And if you could give it directly to them and they could figure out almost like a voucher system, what we have, what people, what Milton Friedman idealized for, for K through 12, then you'd start to make universities compete on price uh, um, among other incentives. Wait, but quick thing, but we kind of do that with Pell Grants, right? So like, why doesn't, is that just not big enough in terms of actually directing? Because there's just been lots of interesting studies that like whenever, yeah. so for example, for international listeners, especially Pell Grants are things given by the US federal government um, for um, underserved and under-income people, um, for families who can't afford to pay. And whenever you've seen increases in the amount given, that's actually coincided with increases in the cost of university, because if you're an administrator, you're like, okay, cool. Students now have an extra 5K that they can get paid. So how do you subsidize students without just replicating the dynamics that you're worried about already? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm not familiar enough with, with the Pell Grants. I, I wouldn't be surprised if some elements uh, of it are working. And, and, and I think the challenge is, yeah, you don't, you don't want to put price controls either, but I, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to just look at the data and see that like as subsidies have gone up, prices have, have, have gone up as well. And that hasn't correlated with an increase in quality. Uh, you know, only 25% of it is spent on teachers. A lot of it is spent on administrators or real estate or stuff that just doesn't serve the, the, the customer uh, in, in a super direct way. And, and then also there's very little competition. I, I think if you enabled that access, um, basically you made a level playing field. I think you would see, you know, the sort of thousand flowers bloom and, and the customers would, would choose and the government could be reactive to what the customers are, are, are demanding. And, and some colleges would take that money and, and do different things with it. So it's, it's less specifically about the money and more about if you just create competition, then universities can use it in, in different ways and, and let, the, let the customer decide. Yeah. And last question, you said something that is actually really interesting if you think about it through the right framework, which is why Combinator, a startup accelerator, went remote during COVID along with everyone else. On deck also went remote, well, fully remote during COVID. YC and on deck are both continuing to be remote first because frankly, in both cases, our own personal biases aside, these are actually better programs when they're done remote because you could have an expanded pool. You could have the, like both actually, both um, organizations can have that founder in Mumbai who couldn't make it to New York or SF um, in both cases. But universities rushed back to in-person because within the current system at the current prices, in-person is just so much better. So this is our basically like, not request for startups period of the show, but really if you're thinking about things that could make the university system better in a Zoom distance way, like what would those, in those last five minutes, what would those be in a way that would make that experience? Because I guess there's a chicken or the egg problem because the obvious point is, look, if you dramatically reduce the price of going to Harvard or even going to a good state school, people would be pretty satisfied of the last year. The issue was that they kept the same price and the experience was degraded. But how do you just think about this? When I think about requests for startups and not higher ed, or when I think about what's really broken, it's, it's, I mean, it's not as much the experience, you know, students could learn a lot more. They could be better prepped for, for the job market for sure. But overall, like there are a lot of people who have a great experience in college. What, what's the problem is that it's way too expensive. <laughs> um, people are going to way too much debt. And they're often like unprepared for the job market. So you must, you might've had a great experience studying political science or art history or, or whatever it was, but it's just, you didn't really learn that much that's that useful. And so when, when you say, when we say improved experience, I think it's, it's less like, yeah, you know, Zoom, Slack, et cetera, but more like how do we change the incentives such that one, the price, you know, could be a fraction of, of what it is. And, and, what, what universities probably learned when they were remote is that their costs probably decreased significantly. Yeah, there are all these leases and stuff, and maybe they should get out of, out of these leases. Um, but you know, it's just way cheaper to, to do it online. So the more they move online, the, the cheaper it will become, which means they can provide a, a better experience. And then two is how do they get cl closer to to what the school, uh, what employers want. And, and what you saw recently is, is, is Lambda launch a program with Amazon that basically um, trains people to be, you know, uh, to work specific jobs at Amazon. And that should exist with 
like hundreds of companies where, where they partner with education institutions, whether it's current universities or, or new boot camps, and create direct uh, you know, education to employment pipelines. Uh, Scott Belsey calls it edupployment. Um, so you want to see that that pipeline get, get a lot closer. And then also, I mean, I think this is a way for colleges to serve better, but also as a way for to disrupt the monopoly they have is, is, is really just credentialing, really just how do we get away from sort of this like binary, you were invited to the club or you weren't invited to the club and more like competency-based, what does this person actually know and who, you know, that you think is impressive also thinks that they're impressive after spending just a little bit of time. Uh, that information is in, you know, millions of people's heads all, all over the world and, and is not legible to, to the internet. But I think that would, the collection of those things would make the university experience better, cheaper, and it would force it to, you know, actually compete um, for, for and, and treat students like, uh, like customers. And uh, I'm excited for that, for that future, excited to help build it. Yeah. And just to build on that real quick, because what you just said helped me realize an important gap that I haven't covered in this conversation, which is if you're looking, especially at the top tiers of colleges, they are grading people on how they're performing basically from sixth grade up until 12th grade. So there's this very specific period of time where there's different levels of maturity, different levels of knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what could be promising about this new vision, whether it's the peer-to-peer credentials, whether it's the digital first thing, whether it's the focus on did you actually learn something, is this could really provide an avenue for people who weren't crushing it at 18 or 14, but are in their 30s and actually want to learn a new skill or actually want to actually have peers back them out that could actually help them reperform most. So that's, I think that's how anyone who's listening to this should really think about, which is that the way probably to disrupt the higher education system isn't to just say, hey, we're going to found digital first Harvard and do everything that it's trying to do, because that's to your point, what the MOOCs tried to do in certain respects is to say, how is this function, this quote unquote jobs to be done? job to be done the university has, how can it be filled in a different way? And looking at that credentialing part, looking at those structural things are huge. So huge encouragement to anyone in the audience who has thoughts on that or is focusing on that to really dial in on that. Cause I think that's really, I think that's what's really exciting about all of this. Yeah, no, I love that point, Marshall. It's not just continuous education, but also continuous credentialing, right? Like if you, you know, many people in their lives don't mature until their mid twenties, later twenties. And at the time when they're 18, you know, and leading up to it, they, they didn't have the maturity or the focus or whatever to really get great grades and get, they, they wouldn't have got to a good school or they didn't go to a good school. But then, you know, if you measured them at age 26 or something, or they could restart, you know, five years later, they could get into Harvard or, or whatever it is. And so what are the equivalent credentialing sort of modules that, that showcase, Hey, okay, this person didn't have it all together when they were, you know, 18 or 20, but at 28, they really do. They're really top of the class. And so, um, yeah, that, that's a really exciting opportunity. I, I hadn't even thought of, uh, as well. So. Great. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us for these first episodes of The Deep End. I'm sure we will revisit this topic at some point because I suspect this will not be solved in the next two to three, four or five months or even years. Thanks, Marshall, for leading this and uh, to be continued. Thanks for joining us in The Deep End. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.